I'm just going to say a quick karakia to open the proceedings. Um, we're now going to have a waiata, which we're hoping we're all going to join in. We've got some great leaders here behind me. And um, the waiata is called Haere Mai, which is welcome. And I'm going to do some actions, and I'd love you to follow the actions because it's a great way of warming up and getting ourselves all nice and relaxed and ready to go. And um, I will be mirroring you. So usually with kapahaka, you start with the right side, but I'll do it left, which means you'll be right, and you'll be perfect. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so um, I'll call out the words as well, and so don't be shy. Uh, it's just all about having a bit of fun um, when we find the words. Okay, you all ready to have fun? <laughs> um, and it's called haere mai. Okay, and it's just hiding. Um, hide in my, here we go. Oh, yeah. Okay, hop there. Come on, hop there. Hide in my, 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 hide in
Talofa, kia ora. Good evening. Welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2018. My name is Sonia O'Regan and um, it's my pleasure to speak on behalf of the team behind the festival and welcome you all here tonight. I just need to say thank you so much to Maggie and, and everybody for the song. It's wonderful. Um, it's a good opportunity for me to acknowledge the work of the committee and I'd like to, um, to name them all because they make me speak publicly. <laughs> because no one else wants to do it. But we've got a terrific team. So thank you so much, Sophie Priest and um, Charlotte Patterson, Kat Pickford, Sharon Hill and Lorraine Carrier. We have such a great time. It's no hardship organising this, it's such fun. It's also a great opportunity to thank our sponsors and there's many sponsors in the room tonight. Thank you, thank you for being here. This um, event actually happens because of the sponsors. Um, the generosity of the businesses and the people who own those businesses and the support for this event um, knows no bounds. So uh, take a moment to, well, when you get the chance, uh, we have their names on billboards at um, events all through the weekend. And if you're local, please support our sponsors and tell them you're supporting them because they support the Marlborough Book Festival. Cool. Um, and just a little bit more warm fuzzy, ticket sales um, generate some money these days and so we're really proud to this year be helping to bring the uh, New Zealand Book Council's Writers and Schools project to Marlborough. So in August, August over four, three days, we'll have three different authors visiting um, our children in our primary and secondary schools. And a special thanks to um, Colleen Shipley at the Marlborough Girls College Library who's organising that, the details of that. So um, we're really pleased to be supporting that and helping um, generate enthusiasm for reading amongst the younger members of Marlborough. I have some housekeeping. There are exits if the, in case of emergency. They're lit when the case arises. So at the door where it came in and over here, over there. The toilets are off the foyer through which you entered. Please turn off or at least turn down your cell phone. Um, and in case of an emergency, I understand the Boathouse Theatre people will come onto the stage and tell you what to do. This is a new format for our festival, this opening session. We're really excited about it. We're really grateful to the authors who are speaking tonight. Thank you. In fact, we're deeply grateful to all of the, our authors for being here. It's really exciting when you all arrive. Like, everyone's here. Uh, we had a terrific start to the festival with the session on the water in Queen Charlotte Sound with Tina and Nikki in conversation today, and I know we're in for a fantastic weekend. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Tessa to come to the stage. Tessa Nicholson has been an MC with our festival since 2014. We're so lucky to have her. She's terrific. Many of you will know her, and I'm just going to... <laughs> She'll lead you through the evening. Thank you, Tessa. Not... Oh, you can sit there if you want, darling. Sit down. I'll just move this because I might knock it. Right. So, welcome. This is the opening night of the fifth uh, Marlborough Book Festival. Five years. I can remember when it started. Nobody quite knew what we were doing, what we were going to be doing, and the poor authors, they were um, put through the ringer, and it was just fantastic. It's got bigger and better and brighter every year. So this year we have 12 authors. We have five stunning venues, five fantastic wineries whose wines you got to taste tonight, and you will get to taste over the weekend at the event. So tonight is just a little different. Um, the theme of this year's book festival is Off the Page, and we have five authors who are going to talk to that theme. I have no idea what they're going to do. They could read their words, they could act something out, they could um, ask questions of you, but they have got a certain period of time that they can do whatever they like 
so long as it's to the theme off the page. And those authors are, and I just wonder if you'd, the, you'd each stand up when I mention your name. There. First up, in a little while, is Ethel Anderson. Welcome, Ethel. <laughs> and Ethel is one of the three authors behind the brilliant Tangata Whenua in illustrated history. Then it's Harry Broad. We feel quite privileged because this is the second time that Harry's been at a book festival. He was here at our inaugural event um, with his book Molesworth and he's got a book soon to be released about the Awatere Valley. Glenn Cahoon is our next one up. <laughs> Glenn is a doctor and an award-winning poet. Kate DeGoldie. Also, your second year at the, at the Marlborough Book Festival, well, she writes fiction for all ages and is also beloved for her commentary on children's literature. And actually finishing it off, we have New Zealand's Poet Laureate, and that is Selina Tusatala-Marsh. <laughs> and it's another second for the Marlborough Book Festival because we had C.K. Stead, who was the Poet Laureate last year, and he was a so very, very big welcome to you. So I actually drew this very short straw. I think that um, I didn't attend a meeting or I, I really upset somebody along the way, but they asked me if I would start off the page. And I thought, oh, God. Well, I haven't, I haven't written anything I could read and I'm no good at performing unless I've got a script. So I started to think about it and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll look at... I'm an avid reader and I read and read and read. So I thought, what if I go back... And I look back at my history and I, I find something that I read that has impacted on my life. And I did. I thought about that. And I came up with this book. And you'll probably all laugh. It was given to me when I was 10 years old. It's a reader's digest. <laughs> Animals you will never forget. 10 years old, I was given that. It has gone every single place I've lived in since I was 10 years old. I've read it dozens of times. I've read it to my children. Probably read it to Ross to get him to go to sleep or something. But anyway, I have read it a lot of times. And, but one of the stories in this book that really resonated with me was this um, was the story about the very first seeing eye, um, eye dog in America. And the story is about a young man, who Morris Frank was his name. And he was six years old and he lost the sight in one eye. At 16, he lost the sight in his second eye. Now, this is small town America, 1920. Um, to put it into perspective. And all of a sudden, he had absolutely no way of getting about in his life, and he was completely and utterly dependent. In 1924, his parents heard about this couple in Switzerland that were training up dogs to become seeing-eye dogs. And they told him about this, and he was absolutely determined that this is what he wanted to do. So this is 1924, age 20, Morris Frank gets on a ship all on his own and goes to Switzerland. And this couple who are training these dogs pick him up and he goes out there and he spends months with them learning um, about the dogs and matching with the dog and gets matched up with a German shepherd named Buddy. And eventually, on his own with Buddy, he comes back to America and Buddy becomes the poster dog for the Seeing Eye Foundation of America. He breaks all the barriers down and that's where the foundation for the blind all around the country, all around the world, and Seeing Eye Dogs came. I mean, it was a story that I just thought was amazing. I mean, I seriously wanted a dog, and my father was an ex-farmer and said, you know, dogs are for working. Um, and, I, you know, I was 10 years old. I didn't know anybody was blind. So I tried to imagine what it would be like not to be able to, to you know, visualise anything. I did everything with my eyes shut. So I was racing around the house, you know, brushing my teeth, going to the toilet, you know, getting a glass of water, running outside, trying to get the washing in. 
yeah, the only end result of that was a hell of a lot of bruises, and um, I think it broke three quite precious ornaments, which my mother never forgave me for. So I gave it up. You know, that was that was never going to be. And moved on to other things, as ten years olds do. Probably the famous five or something like that. Um, and it wasn't until many years later, it was about probably 20, 25 years later, and I was here as a radio announcer in Blenheim, and I interviewed Ken Ham. Anybody who lives in Blenheim or Melbourne knows Ken. Ken owns a music shop, for those that don't live here. He owns a music shop, great musician, and for the most, you know, majority of his life, he's been blind. And his sister has the same degenerative disease, and she's blind as well. And he was quite on in years when he got given his first guide dog, um, Cobber. And Cobber was retired and then died when he was about the age of 12. And Ken and his family were devastated, absolutely devastated. He couldn't talk about him. He actually couldn't mention Cobber's name. Or ni none of the family could because it was just so devastating to have lost this freedom. But after about six months, we did this interview on radio. And these are the days we could talk for an hour on radio. It was fantastic. Ross could turn me off, and he just loved it. But um, we talked for an hour, and it was one of probably the most moving interviews I've ever done. He talked about you know, how it had changed his life. It gave him freedom. It gave him independence. It gave his children and his wife, Karen, you know, freedom and independence as well. And, and it, it just was an incredibly um, awe-inspiring story. And it was that, along with the story of Morris and Frank, that in 2003, I um, had retired from work, so I thought, and I thought, now's the time. I could become a puppy walker. So I, I applied, then told the family, and 10 months later, got this gorgeous little eight-week-old golden Labrador puppy named Gilbert. No, there was nothing cuter than a little puppy in a red coat. Um, so he arrived and he spent the next eight months with us. With, we have, my Ross, husband and I, Ross and I, have four boys. And we had to teach him everything. I mean, this is an eight-week-old pup just taken from his mum. So you have to teach him toilet training. He has to toilet on command. He has to eat on command. They mustn't steal food. They, they must sit on command. They must um, go everywhere where you go. So every single place that I went, Gilbert came with me, and whether that was to a rugby match or a basketball or cafe, the movies, on a plane, on, you know, in a lift up, you know, everywhere we went, Gilbert came with us. Um, there were huge advantages in some ways. I mean, the boys discovered it was a massive advantage when we went to a rowing um, regatta at Lake you know, Ruatanifa, and the 16-year-old discovered that if you have a little cute Labrador in a red coat, that is a chick magnet. You know, that is, <laughs> that is amazing. You never had to ask him to walk the dog. He just did it. Um, there were disadvantages, and one of those was, you know, going to the supermarket for a bottle of milk. Five-minute task, you'd think. 45 minutes later, you would leave after everybody in the supermarket had patted and got to know Gilbert. And then there was a very embarrassing one that we went to um, the movies, and I think it was the premiere the third of The Lord of the Rings. And Gilbert was there, and he was sitting very quietly at my feet, and I had the lead in my hand, and all was very happy. And all of a sudden, something happened. It scared the bejesus out of me. I mean, I was going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, sorry. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And by the time I'd sort of prized my hands away from my eyes, um, I realised, oh, my God, I haven't got the lead. Oh, my God, where's the dog? And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, dear. You know, you've got to imagine this. This is a scary part of the movie, darkened theatre, and here's me climbing over the road, going, excuse me, excuse me, uh, lost my dog. Uh, excuse me, um, have you seen my dog? And it was a very embarrassing moment. I think they were about to call the nut house at that point in time. I found him. He was two, you know, two seats down under our son's feet. 
eating popcorn. So I obviously didn't do that not eat on demand, you know, um, training terribly well. So he was 10 months old when he left us, Gilbert, and he went up to Auckland, went through, you know, fairly intense training there and um, was finally matched with a 17-year-old kid, which I thought was amazing because Dean, was our eldest, was 16. So he'd gone from this family of boys and he was with this young guy, Tony, 17, who all of a sudden didn't have to rely on his friends or his family to take him to McDonald's or to go to a party or to meet up with friends. Um, and Tony was just this awesome young man, had the best mohawk I've ever seen. I mean, it's sort of about this high, it was bright blue. I have no idea how, with limited vision, he managed to get it so straight. But he was, he was the new poster boy of the Foundation for the Blind because he was different. People didn't expect somebody like that to be blind and have a guide dog, but he adored Gilbert. And we kept in contact. After a couple of years, I went up and actually visited them. And don't let anybody ever tell you that a puppy doesn't remember, or a dog doesn't remember its first owner because the door opened, I went, Gilbert! And he literally leapt into my arms. He had his paws up here and his other paws on my hips. And he wouldn't let go. And I, I sat down on the floor and he was just all over me. Totally ignored Tony, much to his disgust. Um, but yeah, he was just, he really remembered. And he was quite delightful. Um, and then he stayed with Tony. Tony has gone on. We've kept in contact. And I got a phone call last year. And it was from Tony to tell me that, Gilbert had been retired for three years and that he'd died that week. He was 13 years of age and had died of old age. And, and, and Tony, I was the second person he'd phoned. He'd phoned the Foundation for the Blind and then he'd phoned me and he said, I've never told you this, but I, I never thanked you for what you did. And I mean, We don't do this for thanks, but it was just, it really hit me what that meant, that people who puppy walk and get through this, what it means to somebody who's blind. And we... We looked after seven puppies um, and one police puppy, which is a completely different kettle of fish. <laughs> Story for another day. Um, and I just feel absolutely and utterly blessed that I had that opportunity. And I, I wonder if I'd have done it if I hadn't read the story in this book. You know, if, the, if those words hadn't leapt off the page at me when I was 10 years of age, would I have done this? Would Tony have had Gilbert? I don't know, probably, but nice to think that the written word has such an impact. Thank you. Oh, oh. Come here. This, this is, this is Vincent. Now, Vincent was actually trained, puppy walked here in Marlborough by Phil and Sue Binney, and I'm sure a lot of you know them. Phil's sitting up there in the corner. Um, Phil and Sue owned Lake Chalice Wines, and so he was their, their, guy, their puppy. He, they puppy walked him. And he ended up being a guide dog for a winemaker here in Marlborough. How cool is that? And then he was retired a couple of years ago, and the lovely thing is that he was tried back to Phil and Sue. So he started with them, he's gone back to them. And I'd like to thank Phil very much for bringing, bringing Vincent in so you could see the whole impact. Thank you very much. Come on, darling. And I'll pass over to Ethel. Well, Giorgio, it's a hard one to follow, and uh, off the page is not easy for an archaeologist. But um, <laughs> what writers do to gather material and and what they eventually publish seems to vary quite considerably, even amongst the um, 
uh, uh, within academic writing. So historians beaver away in libraries and archives and then produce works that are full of observation and incident and so on. Conversely, archaeologists just fell off my head, <laughs> have interesting fieldwork experiences that, however, do not fit within the tram lines of scientific writing. Yet, what in a sense is off the page for us is often something that uh, is influential in our working lives and certainly is often fieldwork which is recalled fondly when we think about our careers. And um, I'm just going to tell you a little tale of my first fieldwork in the tropical Pacific. In 1977, Roy Johnson and I were invited by the Royal Society of New Zealand to join an expedition to Tonga and Fiji. Our job was to describe the geology and the archaeology, respectively, of a small island that some of you may have heard of, Atar Island, which is... Um, the southernmost island of Tonga lies about 120 kilometres south of Tongatapu. It's a high island, has a plateau on the top covered in forest, and it's been uninhabited since uh, about 1860. The official expedition log records that Anderson and Johnson, the landing of Anderson and Johnson was dangerous and strenuous but accomplished safely and that we were picked up three weeks later without incident. But what it doesn't say is that a few days before we reached Arta, sailing up on the old government survey ship um, Tangaroa from Wellington, the great Tongan earthquake, the largest earthquake that there's ever been in Tonga, had occurred. Um, it was 7.8 on the Richter scale, and its epicentre was only 50 kilometres south of Arta. From the sea, when we were going up there, as we came up on it, we could see that there was this island and it was wreathed in clouds of dust and that nearly all the vegetation on the cliffs around the perimeter had gone and that there was lots of rocks and other kinds of rubble falling into the sea. Well, of course, being young fellas, we were naturally dead keen to get ashore. I, um, I'll read you first the slightly breathless entry in the Outer Island field book, my field book, for the 28th of June, 1977. Bastard of a day. <laughs> Heavy seas and swell. Raised Arter at 7am, could see the earthquake damage from the ship and continuing falls of rocks and rubble. Swam ashore from the rubber boat. <clears throat> Very heavy surf, backwash and current meant a good deal of gear and supplies lost or smashed. <coughs> including personal gear, all excavation gear, and most of our water. The island has no um, streams or ponds on it. The whole time there were continuous rockfalls all around us from 500 to 800 cliffs behind. Much of the time we could not see for dust and spume, spume from the surf crashing on this steep um, um, volcanic sand beach. We eventually managed to stagger after dark around the crumbling cliff bottom around two kilometres to an old village site. Utterly exhausted, 90% of the gear still on Gallipoli Beach, as we named it. <laughs> That's what you write when you're young. <laughs> we'll be lucky to survive the rock falls. Well, somewhat later, I, f I um, wrote a few more details of that expedition, which were published in this uh, 
sort of uh, volume of recollections of the, for the 50th anniversary of the New Zealand Archaeological Association. And I wrote, we had some food in a tent, but we were down to half a pint of water a day until it rained a week later and had continuing problems thereafter. There were some coconut palms, but of course, not being Pacific Islanders, we couldn't climb the ones that were vertical. <laughs> so we had to inch our way out along the, the um, trunks of those that were, that were pushing out horizontally from the top of the cliffs. And then we would slap, we had one machete, we'd slash off the nuts and they'd fall, whistle away down. Then we'd have to go down to the bottom of the island and find them in the rubble. Um, later, we found that the castaways, that some castaways, this, these were probably the Tongan boys. You might, some of you might remember that six Tongan boys um, took a whaleboat one night in uh, Tongatapu and disappeared and nobody knew where they were and they were actually on Arthur Island, they'd got to Arthur Island and they were there for 15 months before anybody found them. So it was an amazing story, the story of their homecoming is just in incredible. You imagine, you know, your son is gone and six families and then suddenly they're back again. Um, anyway, these boys had cut depressions where the branches met the trunks of the great fig trees, you know, the fig trees in the Pacific, they're massive. They'd cut into where the branches joined the trunk and made these depressions. And so when the rain rolled down the, the trunks, it filled up these little depressions. Wonderful, brilliant idea. Would never have occurred to us, I'm afraid. <laughs> Roy had the harder task trying to record the geology of an island subject to aftershocks and continual rockfalls and slides. I found it difficult trying to record and excavate sites. The Auckland Department's antique brass level and tripod were last seen entangled with my favourite short-sleeved lammy. I don't know if you know what those are, but they were <laughs> like, um, what do you call them now? Swan dries, but they had short sleeves. Tumbling beneath the surf. The only surviving tool was a machete, and I was reduced to drawing maps and plans on flattened out soup packets, or in this case, surprise chopped onions <laughs> packet. That, that was the only paper-like material we had. So there's a... There's a measured sketch of a Tongan house, nice round end, typical Tongan fashion, all the stones that were left and, a, and of a 19th, part of a 19th century go ashore cooking pot, iron cooking pot. Working under the heavy forest was not a good place for the superstitious. The trees moaned and squealed in the strong winter winds and there were white owls flying in the daytime gloom. In fact, it was so dark, middle of winter, hardly ever any sunshine, that um, I had to stop work usually about half past two in the afternoon. You just couldn't see anything under the, the heavy canopy. Occasionally, rounding a tree, I would see with a sudden shock a recent dendrogram, or a glyph rather, a recent um, carving on the trunk of a tree showing a head or a skull pierced by a knife. Like that with Sioni or Kolo written underneath it, presumably the names of the Tongan boys who by then were feeling the solitude. When the ship returned three weeks later, the seas were typically rough. With all of Roy's rocks, all of his samples, and my load of archaeological samples, the rubber boat was twice upended, holed, and the outboard motor destroyed before we even got off the beach. The boatman rowed the half-deflated dinghy 
out to the ship, and Roy and I hung on to the side of it and swam <laughs> along beside the side, um, beside it. Well, all I really wanted to say was that the Arthur expedition was um, scientifically valuable and successful in that respect, but more importantly, that exciting fieldwork experience, my very first in the tropical Pacific, set me on a course for 40 years of research on tropical islands across the Pacific and Indian Ocean. So off the page counts. <laughs> Thank you. Tata, folks. I was going to bore you rigid talking about my new book, but I've decided to do something else. <laughs> I've only just realised, shit, the theme's actually off the page, Harry. It's not on the page. I don't have the imagination to be a real writer. I have fiction. And unlike Tom Scott, I had a disastrously happy childhood. <laughs> Tom's been mining his old, man memory, his old man's memory for about 40 years. No wonder his old man wrote to Muldoon and said, Egghead had it coming. <laughs> so no miserable family history to exploit. But I'm going to tell you of a wonderful <coughs> experience uh, I had a couple of years ago. where People in Italy in a little high country town called Caramanico contacted me and said, we'd like to translate your father's uh, book on his escapes uh, in Italy and hiding in the mountains into Italy, and I thought, ha ha, this sounds like a Nigerian banking scheme <laughs> to me. So I said, yeah, sure, you do that. And they said, we want to have a freedom trail for all those people that, when Italy capitulated in 1943, uh, a lot of POWs walked out and hid in the mountains. And Dad was fortunate enough to come to Caramanico, where a little woodcutter and his wife um, really did sort of save their life. So I land in Rome and they come and pick me up, flashing police car, <laughs> which is not unusual for me. And um, <laughs> they said, we're going to make you an honorary citizen of Karamanaka. I said, oh, shit, OK. Well, what does that involve? What it involved was um, a town hall full of people and me sitting up the front. And all I could think of was James Taylor's wonderful line about, hey, mister, that's me up on the jukebox. <laughs> And so the mayor presented his um, honorary citizenship and I promised I wouldn't start moaning about the state of the roads till tomorrow. And then a local doctor got up and he had videotaped uh, the um, 28th Maori Battalion at Casino. So the whole hall erupted into Maori Battalion March to Victory. And boy, the Italians may be short and they have a lot of funny politicians, but God, they can sing. So that was a very surreal experience. Come Sunday, we had the opening of the track, which I did with a female, uh, Carbonari Colonel. And if, the if wars were won on style, the Italians would win hands down. She was absolutely immaculate. <coughs> I balled out. <coughs> now is the air was probably just as incomprehensible in my tereo as it was in the Italian that followed. And these young people sang the war songs of the partisans. So, um, <coughs> and, and going through the town, there were these metre-high posters of, of the book uh, advertising this three-day function. So um, it was just one of those uh, very rare experiences that um, 
And, and to me, it illustrated, you know, a lot of our neoliberal economics has been driven by the theory of rational expectations, that people will only act in their own best interests. Well, these Italians, um, if they didn't hand Dad over and got caught, they'd have got shot. And the biggest cheer I got uh, in the night in my evening speech was to say, let us remember the Sperduti family who were shot by the Germans. And uh, they cheered very loudly. Um, and if they had handed them in, they would have got a lot of money. So it was um, very nourishing to the soul to um, have such warmth. Uh, the Carbonari insisted on shouting the drinks in the bar. And I think the police force here could well adopt that because it kept me, <laughs> it kept me in a very somnolent state. Um, uh, beer that's about $8 there is about $2. Um, so it was a lovely experience, um, clouded over only by when I returned to Rome, I was a bit short of money and I was desperately looking for an ATM, so I'm hammering my card into the slot and I read with horror these words, decay calori preferisce e preservati. What colour do you like your condoms? <laughs> and uh, I tell you, I grabbed my card and slunk away into the night. That'll do. The less you talk, the more they listen. I was hoping that Harry wasn't going to finish on the condom story. I thought that's going to be a terrible way to get up and, and continue things. Um, when I think of poetry um, off the page, I think of oral poetry. Um, and I think if this is the history of poetry, then this is the history of written poetry. Um, uh, and I feel lucky to live in a country that has two poetries one that is written um, in English and one that is sung and intoned and chanted um, in Te Reo Māori. Um, the first oral poem I ever performed on a marae as a young Pākehā boy in Te Kau um, is a very famous old waiata and it goes something like this, you may know part of it. Love me tender, love me true. Um, when I look back at my poetry over 25 years, I think one of the themes um, has always been searching, as a Pākehā, uh, for my oral poems to sing on a marae. Um, I've been lucky to live in between the cultures um, for big chunks of my life. Um, and woken up at three o'clock in the morning to some old man, old Komatua, who's driven up to a tangi, um, singing a song 150 years old uh, to his second or third cousin, getting in the car and driving back. And there seems a commitment in the oral poem that's not quite there when I stand up and read it out of a book. Um, but in those 25 years of looking, uh, for my songs to sing on a marae. Um, I think I've only written one poem that works, 
as an oral poem in Te Reo Māori, as well as an oral poem in English. So I thought I would present that for you um, off the page um, this evening. Um, this is my great-great-great-great-grandmother. I live a lonely life. Um, I've taken to having small po, small totems. Um, come live with me, and, and each of them I've written an oral poem for, um, or a sung history. Um, and my great-great-grandfather, Henry Cliff Cahoon, was born in 1851 in Preston, um, in the north of England. And his mother was uh, Annie. She wasn't married, she was 19 years old. And her mother, Mary Freer, um, gave Henry, when he was born, uh, to the doctor who delivered him. And the doctor gave Henry um, to his sister, who had recently miscarried. And his sister lived in Edinburgh with a man who she's married to called James Cahoon, which is how we became Cahoons. Annie died a few years later, didn't have any other children, never married, her brothers died, and there were no more descendants of Mary Freer left. Um, Henry Cliff, uh, as a young man in the 1870s, came uh, to New Zealand, um, ran off with a girl from New South Wales, um, and settled in the Bay of Islands. He died there when he was 40, um, and left five children, and my bunch of cahoons are descended from his oldest son. Um, so we're the only um, descendants of Mary Freer left. Um, uh, a few years back, I got asked to go to Scotland for the um, Glasgow Commonwealth Games to ex do some poetry exchange. And I thought I would write about my ancestors from Scotland. Um, and I thought I would take oral poems to them because there's a great tradition of oral poetry in Scotland, of course, with Burns. And so I thought it would be nice to write something, um, one poem that could be sung two different ways. Um, it was really tricky uh, to get poems to translate, to get songs to translate each other. Well, I don't think of them as songs, oral poems. Um, so that's the story. Uh, you will be realising with a sinking feeling now that oral poems are sung sometimes. Um, I, I, although, yeah, I have to think of myself reciting a poem to you, otherwise I can't do it. Um, so um, I like to think of us standing in a small park here, Marae, right now and singing the songs of our past. Um, so two songs for you. The first, He Motea Tea, Kia Meri. Ahue, ahue, ekui. Both these songs tell about bringing all my dis, all my whanau to meet Mary. Yeah, so you might not understand the words, but they're both about introducing each descendant back to Mary. Um, Ahue, ahue, ekui, taukiri. Ahue, ahue, ekui. 
querie Kua tūtaki Tāuahi Tēnei hautangi Kua tūtaki Tāuahi Tēnei hautangi Anau i ko te ngaro, arara ko te tūna, nana nei ko te takai āputa mai, ko te whiriputa mai, ko ngā pātū, nana ko au, Tōta maiti, heke iho, te he ua ki runga ia pūrerua, whakapeto atu ki te hone pakiaka peke hua, i horo au, i arangi, I horo au, i a papa kei te hari a atu, tāku te maiti ki a koe. Nāna au, i whakapā koko, nāku koe, i whakapā koko. Me kōrero tā ua i tēnei Māru āpō tā kiri mai te ata Kā māranga tā ua anu nei He pū kōhu ki a rere ake ai ki runga I te tāhuhu i ngā tehi rākau I ngā manu tōpā He ipu pūhake hake Tāku mana wā Ahue Ahue, e kui, taukiri e, ahue, ahue, e kui, taukiri e. Song for Mary. Mary, I am sprung from thee, Hawthorn from the Hawthorn seed. From your lips and from your eyes, and from the cross between your thighs, you gave me for the doctor's pay. You gave me for the shame You put me on a ship to sail Ten thousand miles away 
Mary, hide, run from thee. One daughter small, but five sons deep. One removed and one excused. One's buried, wearied and reproved. You gave to us the baker's son. You gave to us the slog. You gave to us the billy boiled. You gave to us the song. And I have come from upside down. And I have walked all week. And I have come your long lost son to kiss you on the cheek. Oh, I have come, your long-lost son, to kiss you on the cheek. Oh, Mary, I am hung from thee, like Jesus from the Jesus tree. From your lost and from your found, from your seed on stony ground. You gave to us the sweetheart, and you gave to us the song. You gave to us the long white cloud. You gave to us the song, and I have come the long way round. And I have walked all week. And I have come, your long-lost son, to kiss you on the cheek. Oh, Mary, I am sung from thee, cuckoo in the tui tree, from your lips and from your side. From the want inside your eyes I've brought for you the sweetheart And I've brought for you the want I've brought for you the long white cloud I've brought for you the song And I have come from upside down and I have walked all week, and I have come, your long-lost son, to kiss you on the cheek. Yes, I have come to hundred years to wake you from your sleep. Thanks, Duncan. It's really just to lean on. Thank you. <laughs> um, kia ora, talofa lava, warm Pacific greetings.
That was sensational, Glenn. Um, I almost feel like breaking into Santa Lucia because, as Harry said, Italians can sing, but I won't. <laughs> I want to talk um, just very briefly about um, the strange life of the child, which is something I think about a lot because I write for children and I spend a lot of time working with children in schools and <coughs> something that all children's writers do and um, people who feel close to childhood can recall the strange, amorphous, between-the-worlds um, feeling of childhood when you are trying to decode the odd adult world. There's a, um, in the first um, Narnia book, not chronologically, but the pre-story of how Narnia was formed, the magician's nephew, there's this wonderful place called The Wood Between the Worlds. Um, and the first two characters in the Narnia stories, Diggory and Polly, end up in the wood between the worlds and they slowly lose the sense of who they are um, because there's a kind of powerful magic at play and they have to grope towards each other and remember each other. And when I read that as a child, it, it reminded me, or, or it seemed to me something that I knew, which was um, being a child and trying to work out the world. When I'm in schools, I often do a poem with children called A Martian Sends a Postcard Home. And it's about a Martian writing back to the folks on Mars about what he's seen on Earth. And the things he's writing about are books, the toilet, the telephone, mist, cars, television. And he makes riddlesome metaphors out of them because like a child, and I do think children are like Martians, he sees very clearly what's in front of him, but he can't always interpret it properly. properly. And so misstates it back to the people he's sending the postcard to. And childhood is full of those felicitous, often, misunderstandings. For instance, you'll all have um, an experience one way or another of um, the wonderful Mondo Green, our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. <laughs> and many more like that. Um, often the misunderstandings are linguistic, and as such, they send you in unusual directions in terms of your understanding of the world. I remember very clearly in the 1969 um, New Zealand election, <coughs> knowing, you know, coming to a kind of political consciousness and knowing that it was between national and Labour. But my big question was, if Labour won, would the National Orchestra become the Labour Orchestra? <laughs> um, a matter of great mirth for the aunts and uncles. Um, so whenever I'm in schools, um, I'm, I'm coming across these beautiful misunderstandings which sort of illuminate the world in different ways. And of course, when you're lucky enough to have children or be associated with children, these things come daily. And um, I have two um, biological children and um, grandchildren through my stepdaughter who have been bringing these kinds of um, misunderstandings over the years in you know, a torrent, really. But my son Jack, who's now nearly 30, um, was particularly um, fecund in this regard. And um, he was a most unusual four-year-old. Um, 
I mean, I think all four-year-olds are unusual in the sense that they are still unsullied by school in the wide world, and they live in a fevered kind of imaginative state. And Jack particularly would um, wake up in the morning and say, I am not Jack. <laughs> I am Peter Pan. <laughs> or Captain Hook. Or once, wonderfully, Attila the Honey. <laughs> so, um, and he brought forth daily fantastic reflections on the world, which is what children are for, is to remind us again of how wondrous the world is, I think. And one of his most beautiful ones was one time when I was cleaning in the bathroom and he was standing there, he was four years old, and he sucked these two fingers all the time. It was quite contemplative. He was staring and staring at the tap dripping into the bath and the water going down the plug hole. And eventually he took his finger out of his mouth and was ready to pronounce, and he said, water has a short life. <laughs> Which was pretty wonderful. Um, and, um, you know, sent me to all sorts of reflections on life and its brevity and what it is to be human rather than a drop of water. And, um, but I'll finish with two um, memorable moments which involve Jack and his sister. Um, and for me, um, showed so clearly what an enormous amount of information children have to decode um, when they're working out how to be in the world. And I mean, children's, children spend most of the time, in news, and children's literature is about this, looking at the adult world and trying to work it out. And I've often thought that National Radio has a big part to play in this, because there is this information coming through, it's just there as sort of oral wallpaper a lot of the time. And I can remember from my own childhood saying in puzzlement one day to my parents, who is Boris Moiseyevich? You know, he was someone who read the news, <laughs> but he was just sort of there, but I couldn't see him. And um, <clears throat> of a Saturday morning, um, when the children were young, um, I would lie in bed and Bruce would make pancakes and the children would help him and they'd bring them in and they'd come running in and tell me things from the news often. And I can't remember what year it was, but um, Lucci and Jack came into the bedroom with great purpose to talk about something. And Lucci was five and a half, six, and had learnt to read and was reading the newspaper quite often. You know, it must have been so amazing for her. Anyway, and her question this day was, what is going on with President Clinton and Monica? <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and as much as anything, this was... Um, this is a big moment for me, because I'd always thought, I'm just going to be so good about the way I teach them about sex. And um, Jack was three and a half, and he, he knew something big was about to happen, and he knelt up on the bed, listening hard. And, they, and, and I went into it. I can't believe I did this. And um, they looked variously appalled as time went on, as I tried to explain to them, because she knew about the cigar, and um, I tried to explain to them what had been happening, but I also wanted to sort of couch it in a way that they felt like sex was a beautiful thing, but <laughs> it, was it was impossible. And, um, and at the end, there was just quite a silence, and Jack said, I'm going to put all that sperm down the toilet. And I <laughs> Pretty funny. But the most amazing moment was not long after that, and I think it must have been sometime in the late, or the mid-90s, he came racing into the bedroom on the Saturday morning and said, good news, 
the Oklahoma bomber is going to be executed. <laughs> and um, in my pious way, I decided it was time to introduce him to the notion of restorative justice. And I said, oh, no, that's not good news, Jack. That's not. No, it's terrible. And he got into bed with me, and he really wanted to know why. And, um, you know, he killed 168 people. I said, yes, I know, but killing him is not necessarily the, you know, the answer to this. And we talked on about it, and he kept calling him the Oklahoma bomber. And at a certain point, I said, L let's call him by his name. You know, he's not the Oklahoma bomber. He's Timothy McVeigh. And there was this really long silence. And finally, Jack said, he sounds like a really nice guy. <laughs> Thank you. I haven't felt so spoilt in quite a while, so I would like to thank the organisers. I would like to thank Cloudy Bay and that beautiful shack. <laughs> um, and I would also like to thank the people who gave us the complimentary car to use for our stay. Just amazing, so thank you so much. Um, I've got three poems that each illustrate something slightly different about off-the-pageness. Um, I was in working, Tom Scott, in a farm at Port in Portugal, in a vineyard, uh, when I heard the news that Jacinda and the baby had arrived. So for me, poetry exists off the page in the first instance anyway. And I just kind of leapt around the farm with the um, bull calf going, the baby's here, the baby's here, the baby's here. Um, and then I sent this off to Steve Braunius. It's called Jacinda and Clark and the Baby and Us, a rondel, which consists of three stanzas of five, four, then six lines, and you've got to adhere to a particular kind of rhyming scheme. You'll hear it. The baby's here, the baby's here. Aotearoa, New Zealand, what a year. Jacinda, our partnered and pregnant world first, has this 125th suffrage year given birth to a wee girl so dear. Women are extending the frontier. In census 2018, let's be clear, and count the ways women in the stats have reversed. The baby's here, the baby's here. Patsy, our governor general, is near. Shan, our chief justice. Leanne's the Christchurch mayor. Jenny and Carmel for labor. But Winnie came first. Marama co-leading Greens, another burst. But the real labour has happened, let's be clear. The baby's here, the baby's here. <laughs> so as a Pacifica poet, scholar, literary activist, I've often been haunted with the question about does poetry really matter? Does poetry really have influence off the page? And in this poem, I talk that issue out. It's called Apostles. 
Alice Walker said before placing a red cushion in the middle of the road that poetry was revolutionary. Sometimes I don't believe her. Even though I'm writing about Pacific apostles, 12 disciples of the word, the first 12 women poets, mostly as yet unheard, they are lava, they are mother, they are uros and eros, they are flying fish out of water. See, I was googling betel nut PNG, a mild narcotic like kava wrapped in daga leaf. The nut is chewed and crushed with coral and shell. Well, that makes lime, alters the pH levels in your mouth, turning saliva scarlet. Hence the bloody splotches on Port Moresby's streets, bins, seats, windows, benches, signs, cars, shop front ledges before the total ban in January this year. I'm not a chewer myself, but my husband tried it. A Solomon Island student offered it a sign of hospitality and friendship beer and betel nuts for all, even his teeth pinking after chewing, chewing. And I was googling about acid in the mouth, oral cancers and ulcers, and I was googling about lime, it's burning, and up comes a photo. A brown woman is sitting, her back to us, Bear on a corrugated iron dock, noose round her neck, wrists bound, machete bites mar her back, one gash so deep its creviced meat blackens in the smoking air. I cannot see her face, but the encircling crowd can. Three-year-old boy leaning on the young man can. Little girl in the red polka dot skirt holding her father's hand can, too. Gangs of youths stoke the irons in the open barrel. I cannot see her face. But sister held back by the policeman can. Policeman held back by the mob can. Fire truck driver blocked by the mob can, too. Her shoulders have lost their angular protest and hang askew. Her skin is silent, the behaviour of a witch. If ever they saw one, the highland bush sings. The trial begins. Blogs tell me many try to stop the staking the poker burning. I am told her 70-year-old mother struggled to free her. They broke her pelvis, her femur. Sister cannot comprehend, comprehend how both crawled their way through dirt and mob to the church back door step, flesh burning between daughter's legs, soldered by soldiers against sorcery. Mother and daughter are taken into custody. 
for their own protection. Police made attackers sign a promissory note to leave them alone. Sister never sees them again. But there is no doubt as to the whereabouts of 22-year-old mother of two, Kapari Lineata, blamed for the unexplained death of a six-year-old boy, dragged from her hut, strung up like a pig, she bore the dance of knives and burning rods for hours before being staked on an unholy altar. Piles of huggies, nappies, moringo, miscellanea, and tires black red with spit, then lit. This mob are more sophisticated, mining, money orientated, armed cell phones and steady hands posting pics on Instagram. Not in the 40s of Jackson's lottery, but in February. 2013. Alice, how can poetry possibly revolutionise? Kapari lineata, kapari lineata, kapari lineata, kapari lineata, kapari. On a lighter note, <laughs> my last poem um, is um, in honour of someone who showed me first that poetry lives in oral tree. And um, this isn't to criticise Auckland City Council in any way, but several years ago they did invite me to an event um, and they said they would like me to perform with my idol Sam Hunt at the Parnell Rose Gardens. And I shifted things, moved things, and was there, ready to perform with Sam Hunt. I got there at four o'clock. We were performing at five. We were sharing the stage, but he had shared the stage at 11 and was well gone by then. So he didn't get to hear this, but he, he did hear it um, two years ago on Waiheke Island, where I live. Um, it also riffs off one of his favourite, uh, one of my favourite poems of Sam's, School Policy on Stick Men. Uh, when I first saw him, he had bright orange hair. It's called Orange Crayon Stick Figure Man, and actually speaks to Kate's relationship experience with children. Sam, Sam. My orange crayon stick figure man, I love you because you are what you do and you did what you said. Back in 82, I was 11 when you came to our Avondale school. You looked drunk. <laughs> but you were nobody's fool. Like the unsung Pied Piper, you played your own tune. And we followed, and we followed, and shirt hung like a rolling stone, Maxim flung over black exclamation mark jeans, puncturing our poetry rules forever. And I loved you, and we fo 
followed and we followed and we followed your D.B. Brown words, your hill-rolling slurs, your breaths, your chants, your lamentations, your strides, your quivers, your gesticulations. So I want to beg your pardon. I know you never promised me a rose garden. <laughs> but here I am. And I'm doing what you did. And I'm telling. Sam, Sam, we'd only just begun when you coloured in our tongue, waxing oh so lyrical, comical, tragical, Kiwi Shakespeare sharing in our school hall from one rant to the next to the one after that and that. Sam, you one cool cat. And I love you. Thank you. Well, if that's the start, roll on the rest of the weekend. What an incredible thank you very much to the authors, to Selena, to Kate, to Ethel, to Harry, to Glenn. Have I missed anyone? Oh, Kate? No, no, on me. Oh, on me. Oh, to Vincent. Thank you very much. For, and thank you guys very much for being here tonight. Look, the authors that you've heard from tonight, there's more information about them in the programme that was left on your seat. There are very limited number of seats for a couple of sessions left at the weekend. But I um, hope to see you at a few more over the weekend. And thanks very much for coming out tonight. Safe trip home and enjoy the rest of the weekend. <laughs>